Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week, I am in conversation with Louis Everett. Louis is an assistant head teacher for teaching and learning at the West London Free School. Louis is also a history teacher, a former head of history and former head of year. Louis completed a master's in education at the University of Cambridge and during that time was a research lead and whole school teaching and learning coach. Louis joined the West London Free School in 2016 as a head of history and oversaw a drastic improvement in results across GCSE and A-level. Louis created the West London Free School History Teaching Conference and was part of the Department for Education curriculum project implementing their Key Stage 3 curriculum into seven partner schools around the country. And I follow Louis on Twitter and from there I was introduced to his blog which is truly outstanding and we unpack some of the thinking in that blog in this episode. I start by asking Louis about the seven principles of a West London Free School lesson and how they distill what makes an excellent lesson into high-impact pedagogy. We then unpack Louis' uh, Greenshaw Learning Trust National Inset Day talk where he spoke of why whole school teaching and learning structures increase teacher autonomy. And I ask him how these increase learning time, create a studious atmosphere and provide a framework for teachers to deliver high-quality lessons. Then we discuss Louis's most, one of Louis's most recent blogs on whole school training and why there must be another way. And I ask Louis to share his approach to CPD and unpack it for us. I then ask Louis to talk us through how he's aimed to change classroom culture at West London Three School and how he's supported and challenged all of the students to be cognitively active. I absolutely love that term when we're thinking about how our students are thinking in lessons. And then the golden question of our current time, I asked Louis to share how he's transferred all of this into an online platform to, su- to support remote teaching and learning. This was such a fascinating inter- interview for me. And in fact, Louis and I spent four hours of a, of a morning chatting all things education and a little bit of football, but no football comes up in this interview with Louis. So let's dive right in to hear from Louis Everett, from the West London Free School. Louis Everett, thanks so much for coming on the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you today? Yes, very good. Thank you for inviting me on, Darren. I've been uh, keeping an eye on your Twitter for a while in the podcast. It was great. Interviewing some really interesting people, so I'm very flattered that you've invited me today. No, thank you. Likewise, as I mentioned on my Twitter timeline, I've just devoured your blogs. It's it's such wonderful, wonderful um, writing of your experiences at the West London Free School. We're going to unpick a lot of that today. Um, but before we get into that, like I do with all our guests, can you can you ease us in with a little bit about you and your career in education to date, please? Absolutely, yes. So I am from a very much like a teaching family. Uh, both my parents are teachers. So I, my mum is an English teacher. 
and she's next deputy head and she's uh, taught, in, taught in Essex and Suffolk for very, very many years. And then my dad is an ex-head teacher and um, held numerous sort of senior leader responsibilities and was taught similarly in, in, in Suffolk and Essex. They both try to prioritise schools um, with sort of like in, in areas of, of, of socioeconomic disadvantage. Um, which is really really interesting so it meant that growing up uh especially when my dad was a head teacher in in ipswich we we grew up kind of chatting about the kind of you know problems he was facing at school sort of certain groups certain subjects and it's all really really fascinating so i kind of grew up debating the kind of uh how to run a you know, tough comprehensive schools um at kind of whole school senior leader level and always really enjoyed that, really fond memories of, 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 of wanting to sort of take part in those discussions. Then consequently, when I decided to study, decided to study history at university, um, I was sort of desperate to get as much classroom experience as I could. So unfortunately, obviously, a very sort of privileged position to be able to see my parents teach. And uh, I'm sure my dad won't be too offended to say to him very often, but my mum is the best teacher I've ever seen. Um, by, by quite some margin and she's phenomenal at kind of winning rounds and um, pupils who often are, are, are kind of frozen out or disengaged by comprehensive education which is fascinating and um, so yeah I spent a lot of time when I was at university trying to see as many lessons as I possibly could in as many different schools which is uh, a real as I say a very privileged to be able to do I often used to sort of chew the ears off teachers after lessons uh, trying to work out the ways they did the amazing things they did with the kids that they were teaching. Um, consequently, then I applied for uh, the Cambridge PGCE to study as a history teacher um, in 20, uh, 2012, 2013. And I uh, did a year's, a year's qualification at Cambridge, which I learned a huge amount. Still one of the most academically challenging years of my life, but set me up brilliantly to um, for the rest of my career, especially in terms of kind of engaging with the bigger, wider debates. And the course has become quite infamous because of the fact that it was uh, run superbly by Christine Council for many years. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the last cohorts to be taught by her and still hugely grateful for all the work that she did, did for me and kind of being immersed in these huge debates in education. I don't think most PGCEs would, would equip you for. I then, my first ever teaching post, was in a rural comprehensive in Suffolk. Again, you know, the kind of challenges that my parents had faced in kind of a, a tough socioeconomic area with lots of uh, particularly sort of rural poverty, which is really interesting. And the kind of challenges that you often hear about in those kind of rural areas in terms of a, a, a lack of um, aspiration and funding in those sorts of areas. Uh, so I spent three years uh, at, that, at that school. It was really, really interesting. I held a number of posts, little TLR roles, which was really fascinating. One of which was a um, managing the transition from a three-tier system that was in Suffolk at the time to a two-tier one. So the middle schools were being removed from Suffolk at the time. So I was responsible for kind of managing the schools, um, uh, parental engagement and that sort of thing from students um, within the middle schools into a high school setting, which is really, really fascinating. And I also completed my master's in education in those three years. So consequently got a TLR role for a research lead and a coaching lead, which again, taught me lots and lots and lots. 
because I my school gave me so much support during my masters, it really freed me up mentally to be able to focus on the big debates at the time, particularly the kind of uh, traditional teaching and knowledge movement that was that was uh, popular from sort of twenty those sort of 2013, 2014 onwards. And that then drew me to go and take a post at the West London Free School, which is the school that I'm still at today, as a head of history at the time in 2016. Uh, and as, as I say, I was drawn to the West London Free School because of its emphasis on uh, high impact traditional teaching methods and a teacher-led style, that I'm sure we'll talk about later in the podcast, mm-hmm. and um, the emphasis on a knowledge-rich curricula. Uh, was was what really drew me to the West End and Free School. I was head of history for three years. Uh, absolutely loved those three years. Got to work with some amazing people, including Michael Forden, Rob Peel, and uh, many other brilliant teachers. So I was really, really fortunate in those three years to have that. I was absolutely amazed by the power of traditional teaching methods and a knowledge-rich curricula for the students that, that were there. And our real unwavering focus on championing those essential aspects of traditional teaching and knowledge-rich curricula, improved GCSE outcomes and A-level outcomes and enjoyment for the subject for uptake at GCSE and A-level. So really, really proud of those three years. And that consequently meant that I'm in the role that I am now. Uh, I've been as assistant head teacher for teaching and learning. Uh, I took on that role in September 2019 and I'm still in the role. absolutely love Love being in that role. And um, I work very closely with Robert Peel as deputy head teacher for academic. Um, and the two of us are trying to replicate what we did in the history department, whole school. And I think that's probably what most of what we'll talk about today. It certainly is. There's so much to, to unpack there. And hopefully we will do that as we discuss. But it's great that you've worked with some, some great individuals who I admire greatly and read much of their work in terms of Robert and, and Michael, which you wrote there. And of course, uh, Christine Council, who's came up in a previous podcast with, with Sam Strickland. So that must have been a, a wonderful, wonderful um, experience to, to learn from her. And, and as you say, that, that debate. But what I find most fascinating there, Louis, is we've had this emphasis on deliberate practice recently. What a deliberate practice you had from an early age in terms of the discussions you would have had at family dinner and, and watching your, your mum and dad teach and, and dissecting that. So you, you were almost always going to be a, an outstanding practitioner yourself with, with that kind of grounding. So that must have been wonderful. And I love how you mentioned that your dad... Um, your dad won't mind you saying that your mum was the best teacher you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully not too offended. Uh, brilliant. So let's um, let's dive into some of the work at the West London Free School, Louis, which, which you blog about so beautifully. And, and we're going to unpick a few of the things that you have blogged about and, and unpack them for the listeners. And I want to start by discussing the, the seven principles of a West London Free School lesson. Could you share with us, what are the seven principles? Yeah, so the seven principles of Western Free School uh, lesson, it's worth sort of giving a bit of background to them first, because I often get worried that I get credit for these, when actually lots of brilliant people have worse than before, and this is just the last iteration. Um, so they were originally created by Michael Fordham, actually, who, who was one of the reasons that I was attracted to join West London Free School in the first place. And Michael, I think, had 12 principles. They were then scaled down by uh, Rob Hill and Claire Wagner, who's, who is my head teacher. And the two of them, oh, Rob Hill was in my role at the time, assistant head teacher for teaching and learning. 
before I took on the, on, on that role. And the idea is they're meant to boil down and distill the absolute staples of an excellent West London free school lesson. And the, the, the idea is that the school champions traditional high impact teaching methods. And these seven principles are meant to be a model that the absolute essentials of what a good lesson should be across all subjects. Now, obviously, alarm bells rightfully ring with people when they hear kind of uh, whole school teaching and learning structures like this, because the worry is, the danger is they can be so generic that they undermine subject specificity and subject specialists, and they sort of pigeonhole them into areas where then they're, they're not comfortable. So the seven principles are meant to be really broad. They're meant to give enough space for people to be autonomous and work within. So the first principle is knowledge-rich content. As, as, as we've said, we, we're a big believers at the school of powerful knowledge and um, making sure the pupils have the opportunity to study the best of what has been thought and said. Uh, our, our hope is that through this kind of knowledge-rich content, pupils access academically challenging material that broaden their understanding of the world. And this is you know, built on a kind of cultural capital argument that I know you've covered a lot in a lot of your blog, blog posts to make sure pupils can leave the school and live happy and fulfilled lives with an essential body of knowledge. Then the second principle is teacher-led lessons. So um, I, uh, I know that you've covered a lot about sort of Engelman's direct instruction and, and, and those sorts of things. And it's, it's really meant to champion the idea that the teacher is the authority in the classroom and to have real emphasis on good teacher explanations, enthusiastic delivery, all those sorts of things. Excellent behaviour is the third principle. So we adopt a, a warm, strict approach to behaviour. And we're very proud of the fact that West London Free School behaviour is at an incredibly high standards and you can wander around corridors and enter any classroom and there's a calm, studious atmosphere. We, the fourth principle is retrieval practice and it's a real emphasis on the fact that pupils in lessons should be being encouraged to retrieve knowledge from memory and students are given a lot of support in terms of their study skills and homework time to uh, be given the sorts of, of, of impetus and emphasis to be able to learn knowledge from memory and retrieve that. Then, as we've adhered to uh, already in the podcast, deliberate practice is the fifth. Um, I think often, the kind of, especially in the early days of sort of traditional teaching methods, knowledge-rich curricula, and the big push uh, in the early stages of my career, very often uh, Direct instruction and teacher instruction was really, really strong. Knowledge-rich curriculum was really strong, but often we neglected the teaching of kind of more abstract, complex procedures and skills. So deliberate practice is built on the belief that pupils can't learn these complex procedures and skills through osmosis. They need to have them really clearly modelled and scaffolded and structured. And I know there's been lots of work done on this in the in over the last couple of years. And an excellent book is the Direct Instruction uh, Research Ed book that picks apart things like fading. It's been really influential in our recent work on deliberate practice. Then our sixth is pupil-teacher dialogue, which I know that we'll talk a little bit more about one of my blog posts on this um, later in the podcast. But I think often a mistake has been that pupils um, at the early days have kind of the, the push to champion traditional teaching methods again. Um, neglected the participation of students 
and I've always felt the Mavs two type of champions to go to, but for this, but really there should be a wide range of students contributing regularly in a regular dialogue with the teacher and good teacher led lessons do that really expertly. So that's something we've had a real big emphasis on recently. And seventh and final principle is assessment and feedback. We're really proud of the West London Free School of the fact that students see um, testing as a, as, as a regular part of learning. They don't see it as some kind of really scary, high stakes add-on at the end of their learning. They're regularly being assessed throughout their time at West London Free School, and they see it as a chance to show off their knowledge, test the sorts of things that they've learned. And there's a real positive attitude around uh, both sort of informal low stakes testing, but also our kind of end of term and end of academic year assessments. Right, wonderful, wonderful summation. And it tears off beautifully for, for moving forward and what we're going to unpick, because you mentioned we're going to unpick about your whole school teaching and learning structures, your classroom culture and, and, and pupils being cognitively active. But can I, can I ask you, Louis, how, how do the seven principles distill what makes an excellent lesson into then the high impact pedagogies you spoke of? Yes, yeah, so uh, what we what we aim to do through the seven principles is give staff enough space to be able to, within their departments to think very closely about what that looks like within their particular subject. So it's very important for us that the seven principles don't become a kind of checklist for observations. For example, it's it's not it's not sort of the horror, horror show early Ofsted days uh, in my early career of kind of a checklist of things that I had to tick off and make sure I did and then become kind of hoop jumping. Really, these are these are broad principles that should apply across a wider scheme of lessons. And staff are given loads of time and space within their departments to be able to think very carefully about how how these principles manifest themselves in their individual subjects. So I know we'll come later on to talking about staff training, but um, our Friday breakfast sessions, our sort of voluntary CPD, very often we just get, we set aside 25 minutes for a teacher to talk about how really excellent teaching looks like in their, in their, in their subjects. And obviously an art lesson looks vastly different to what an excellent history lesson would look like or a maths lesson. So these principles we're very proud of because we think they are the staples of any excellent lesson across any subject, but at the same time, they're not meant to be you know, too restrictive for subject specialists. Definitely. And I love that nod that you just made there about the differences between a practical subject like art and a, and a knowledge subject like history and, and how excellent teaching might look different but I love how they're underpinned by the seven principles of the West London Free School to to help teachers distill them down into impact, impactful teaching in their lessons that's that's like thank you for for mentioning that's a really important point so I'd like to then go on to your whole school teaching and learning structures because you mentioned them earlier and how they support teachers and you've mentioned quite a bit about giving teachers time and space and it not being a checklist. And, and for the Greenshaw Learning Trust National Inset Day back in the 18th of December, you spoke of why whole school teaching and learning structures increase teacher autonomy. So can you, can you share with us, how, how do these systems increase learning time, create a studious atmosphere and provide a framework for teachers to deliver high quality lessons? 
Yes, it, it, it was a long time ago, the Greenshaw Learning Trust Day. There's a brilliant day put together by Ben Parnell and the team. It's fantastic. Um, and yes, the, these I've been interested in this for a long time because if you go to the, the highest performing uh, schools that have championed sort of traditional teaching, warm strip behaviour, those sorts of things, they very often have really clear structures and systems that everyone adheres to for a concerted effort to improve teaching. Uh, so teachers aren't just within their own classroom, you know, doing their own thing and being that kind of um, romanticised idea of the sort of maverick teacher in their classroom, their really novel methods. Very often they're working within structures for a really concerted push so that the teaching improves across the whole school. So rather than, you know, particularly in my early career, I, I, my sort of idols in teaching were, were were the staff who kind of bucked the trends and, and were quite proud of the fact that they that they didn't stick to the kind of whole school systems. Uh, when I've visited really high performing schools like Michaela, for example, we talked about before the podcast, they were you know they 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 have a really big push where everyone's on board championing the same sorts of things. But on the turn side of that, I've also seen teaching and learning structures in my early career that were, you know, gimmicky and um, uh, and potentially overrode some of the autonomy of subject specialists. So, I, in the in the um, in that uh, session that I gave to the Greenshaw Learning Trust, um, I started a story of one of my first ever experiences of an Ofsted inspection, where I remember seeing the PE department dragging out a whiteboard across a muddy field just so they could project their learning objectives that's a terrible teaching and learning system because it's not in, it's not enhancing the 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 learning of that subject it's, it's 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 making it worse for a kind of gimmick to stick to now when i took up the role of assistant teacher for teaching and learning my head teacher and i uh claire varner is still my head teacher she um, sort of, we both set the goal of making sure all teaching was excellent. Now, obviously, there, there are many proxies that make up what we think excellent teaching looks like, but we want it to be a kind of consistent uh, experience that when you go from lesson to lesson, every classroom, there is a culture of students working really hard, all committed to, 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 to their learning and to the same goal, and the teachers having a, a similar sort of thing. So what we tried to do is create some systems to create a sort of framework for teachers to be able to teach their very, very, very best lessons. And as I've said, it's important that we, when we designed those, that they didn't become too, too um, restrictive for classroom teachers. So one of these systems that we created was entrance and exit routines. So this is something that whether you're a maths teacher or a science teacher or an English teacher or whatever, whatever subject you teach, a good entrance to a lesson is really helpful, making a good purposeful start. So our entrance routine means that students know that as soon as they walk into the lesson, even if the teacher is not there, they go straight in, they stand behind their desks, absolutely silently, unpack all of the equipment they need for the lesson. They should be, if the teacher is slightly late, yeah, from a transition in the corridor, they should be absolutely silent, thinking really carefully about what the content is for that lesson. And then when the teacher enters, they uh, wait for the teacher to be ready before they all sit down, the lesson starts. And it was just a way of making sure that there was always a really studious, calm, purposeful start to a lesson. Similarly, the exit routine, students 
try and maximise all the time they possibly can um, to then get off into the corridor straight to their next lesson. Um, and then the other, the other uh, routine that I talked about in the Greenfield Learning Trust was ASAP, which is quite similar to slant as a classroom routine that people may have covered before. Um, but ASAP was the idea that we wanted students to always be concentrating when a teacher was speaking. And as we spoke about at the start of this podcast, teacher-led lessons and direct instructions, one of the, one of the seven principles. So we're, we're, we know the importance of that. We wanted students to see that as well. So ASAP uh, requires students to have their attention on the teacher. That's the A. Sat up straight, arms on the tables, and no pens in hands. And again, in some lessons, when we when we floated this as an idea, our maths department was saying, oh, well, actually, sometimes we quite like students having a pencil in hand or a pen in hand when we're speaking. And obviously, that's that's fine. Like it's, 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 it's a structure for them to use. But if the, if the maths department decide, oh, it's, remember ASAP, ladies and gents, but as always, pen in hands for our particular subject. So we are really, really keen in our design of these structures to make sure it didn't undermine individual teachers. But what these structures have done really, really well, and we're so proud of it, is that it's changed the feel of the building because there are these common aspects that are familiar for all students. It means that um, you know, there's some familiarity, which gives teachers a opportunity to be you know, autonomous and free to do what they want in the lesson because it's really enhanced behaviour. The last thing to say about these structures is one of the successes about them was in how we launched them. So we really communicated the, the logistics of them, the how, so exactly what students need to do to follow these routines. First of all, in assemblies and then in tutor time. But we also communicated the why, the rationale. And this was really, really, really important because students were then fully bought in to these systems and really fully committed and saw the usefulness of them. They weren't just kind of arbitrary you know, routines that they were following. They really felt like it was benefiting them. And similarly, as I wrote in my blog post and, and spoke about the Greenshaw and Trust Inset Day, is we also communicated the rationale, logistics, the how and the why, really clearly to staff. So there's this big concerted effort for everyone to want to improve um, teaching and learning across the school. Certainly, because you speak about this idea of collective responsibility, um, which which shines shines through in that. Could I ask you then, um, just to to focus in on the entrance and exit routine? So you you spoke about them at assembly and, and sure. Did you practice them with the young people in the in the teaching staff? Oh, it's really interesting. So as we've said, similarly with the seven principles, these structures are meant to provide kind of freedom and autonomy for the teacher. So it's it's a careful balance, isn't it? It's quite difficult to make sure that you're providing systems and structures at whole school level so that everyone's got that big concerted effort to want to improve the school but at the same time you're giving staff the autonomy to be their own charismatic teacher in their own particular way in their own subjects so that's quite a good example is that it was down to the form tutor how they communicated exactly the why and the how so many teachers do regularly practice the routines with their form groups. And at the beginning, we heavily suggested that it should be, um, uh, should be practiced by individual tutor groups. We also introduced 
a kind of shared language for students and staff as well. So part of that shared language you adhered to was collective responsibility. Um, and I gave the original assembly on this and then talked about collective responsibility in staff briefing to make sure that everyone was using that term confidently for the idea that if one person sticks really closely to these routines and these systems, everyone benefits from that. And it does mean that it becomes quite self-regulatory. Students get quite annoyed if at the start of a lesson someone doesn't follow the routine because it means it slows up their own lesson. And they're, they're, they've been really clearly told that those systems are there to benefit them. It's the same with another term that I used was marginal gains, and we gave a full assembly on marginal gains. And these assemblies, same with collective responsibility, always look the same. They introduce the term, and then through a story, um, they talk about the importance of them. So the story of marginal gains was Elliot Kipchoge breaking the world record for the marathon. And we talked about the fact that rather than seeing all the things slowing him down as a problem, being very negative and downbeat about them, he saw them as opportunities to be faster. And that was how we sort of launched the entrance and exit routines was because we were saying to students, well, it may seem inconsequential to you at the moment that you don't make a you know, don't make the most valuable seconds at the start of the lesson. You don't use that time until the teacher arrives to get all your things out, but it will do. Uh, it will add up to, to make a massive gain for you if you stick to it all the way through. And one of my favourites for this is the date and title. We have presentation guidelines at the school where students write the date in shorthand in the margin in every single lesson they're in. And it, the students do that entirely without teachers mentioning it now that, that that was introduced three years ago by Rob Peel when he was in my role and students don't even bat an eyelid the best example is cover teachers if, if I if I walk into a cover lesson to support the cover teacher very often I wander around I, I, no student is not sticking to the presentation guidelines so it goes to show that once these systems become automated they become really beneficial for the teacher um, and also very little effort the students sticks them because they see them they see the value in them they see how it benefits them certainly that that nods to to time the marginal gains the self-regulation i can i can i can completely picture a, a classroom setting in your school when one child is holding up the rest and the rest are getting agitated because we want to get on with our learning because it's become so automated and, and it's wonderful the references you made of timing how much time in schools do we waste with children coming into classroom and tidying up the classroom and leaving the classroom, whereas if we could automate that and make it habitual, it would, it would the learning time would, would significantly increase. And if you were to track that across a, an academic session or five academic sessions, the, the hours would, would, would frighten us. And um, so thank you for that. So we're going to stay whole school before we, we go and unpack kind of what happens inside the classroom. And you wrote an excellent blog on your approach to staff training and CPD and, and whole school training. And it was called whole school training. There must be another way. Can you share with us your approach to CPD and perhaps unpack it a little bit for us? Yeah, with sort of the blog post you produce, very often you're you kind of are worried that they're not going to have too much of an impact, or or they they don't have much of an impact, and you're a bit disappointed. With this particular blog post, I was so pleased about the reaction to it because it's something I'm really passionate about, and it was actually sparked by a conversation with um, someone who I won't, won't reveal the school that they're at, who talked about being very um, despondent about the fact that they were being 
made to have a weekly CPD of, of around an hour long. And the CPD was quite low quality and it felt that it was it was wasting their time a little bit. And they were having to repeat uh, training on lots of things that they'd done previously. It, was particularly, it weren't particularly inspiring and it felt like they were being dragged along every week. And this this really uh, sort, of, sort of hit a nerve with me, really resonated with me on the fact that it reminded me of my early days of teaching where you'd go to an inset day and um, you'd, you'd go kind of full of enthusiasm. I already talked about my background for my parents. I, 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 was, I, I don't think you can get someone who's more enthusiastic about sitting through some training than I am. But by the kind of sixth hour of that inset day, when you've had your sort of second or third coffee break, speaking to more experienced members of staff, and they tell you that it's the twentieth year that they've had the same sorts of training, it does it, it it gets you down a little bit. I often used to feel like after those inset days, I came away feeling the opposite of inspired and 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 a bit despondent, which isn't how it should be. So when I spoke to this person, what I did was I sent out a Twitter poll. Uh, trying to work out how often staff had mandatory um, CPD, compulsory CPD, um, and how often that was. And I was, I can't remember the percentages now, but I was astounded about how many teachers were still having a weekly compulsory CPD. And the West Africa, we do things very, very differently. So we have different strands, strands to our CPD. And some of those, well, most of those strands are, um, are voluntary. So what we've done is we've, we've tried to keep compulsory whole staff CPD to a minimum and replaced it with more voluntary CPD, as well as a kind of regular dialogue around teaching and learning. So I've already spoken a little bit with the routines about how I've used briefing, but we have a weekly briefing like most, most schools, and we also have a weekly bulletin. And I use both of those mediums to present a kind of constant message message through what I call teaching and learning priorities. And those teaching and learning priorities are the weekly teaching and learning focuses. And very often those, those, um, those priorities run over quite a long period of time. So for example, with the switch to live online lessons, which I know we'll speak about separately, very often many of the priorities have stayed the same, which is making sure that your um, structuring your explanations really, really closely. You're making sure that you set a really high bar for student participation, that sort of thing. But I use the bulletin to present what the priorities are for the week. And as I say, they may have stayed the same across the half term, or there may be new additions that are explained. And then in the briefing, I spend very often just a couple of minutes just talking through any changes, why we've made those tweaks and changes and what we've seen around the school for that week. And staff in those briefings have an opportunity to speak to me by sticking their hand up as kind of a whole school setting or by speaking to me after the, after the, 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 the briefing to talk about the kind of whole school teaching and learning push. And I often think that that regular message has replaced a sort of longer information dump of an hour of, of, of CPD which I think is what often happens. Now, whenever we do have to run compulsory mandatory CPD, which obviously happens in schools, we always set longer on the staff schedule than is required. So uh, when we do entrance and exit, for example, uh, or ASAP, whatever it might be, we need a mandatory CPD because it's a new, a new system that needs a really big concerted effort from everybody. And I set myself, let's say for ASAP, I set myself half an hour, knowing full well that it's very unlikely I'll use that half an hour. And I stand up at the front of the session and I say, 
you know, this is going to take the maximum of this amount of time. I'm hoping to finish early. Thank you so much for your time for speaking about this. In, in, I remember with ASAP, I had a half an hour slot. It took me 15 minutes. And then I took questions for five minutes. And then I said, well, session's over, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being so receptive to my ideas. Enjoy your afternoon. And it's really, really good for staff morale because it means that staff suddenly think, oh, I've got that 10 minutes back. And it also means that I think that happens so often with staff training is that people pad the amount of time that they feel the time that they have because that's what they've been given. And I often think that's the case, especially with external CPD, just because if you're given an amount of time, you feel that to, 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 to make it worthwhile for the participant, participants in the school, you have to make sure you fill the whole thing. And that, that's very inefficient, obviously, and I think is really damaging for staff morale. On top of that, we then have three strands to our, our training. Um, one of them is our teaching and learning strand that's um, run mostly for our Friday morning breakfast program. Now, I'm really proud of this, and I inherited this from um, teaching and learning assistant heads before me. But essentially, every week we have a 25-minute slot from 8 a.m. to 8.25, um, it's, a, it's completely uh, voluntary um, and it has a range of topics. So, I, so for example, we have our, had our arts, one of our art teachers talking about a knowledge-rich art curriculum last week, for example. And or, or it could be more practical stuff like using insight to manage participation and, and measure participation on teams. It'd be very practical stuff. But it's entirely voluntary to attend, 25 minutes long. And when you, in normal times, it's a really nice occasion because there's teas, coffees, muffins, all entirely free. It's all a very warm, cosy little atmosphere. It's very nice. And staff enjoy coming along and it's entirely voluntary for them to come along. Now, we do have to make sure it spreads and disseminates across the school. We have we insist that one um, representative from every department must go. So it's, it, I suppose there's a little bit of direction in that sense. And we give up a little bit of our fortnightly department time for for the teacher who's attended for that department to share the takeaways that are very specific to that subject. So it spreads across the school in that way, but it's entirely voluntary, very, very highly attended. Throughout COVID especially, throughout school lockdown, we have had regularly 40 people attending out of our staff of 65 odd. Um, so that's, 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 that's been really, really positive, creating an excellent atmosphere around teaching and learning in the school. And it's empowered lots of teachers to run those sessions. It's also worth noting that I always meet with the speaker and the presenter before the session, just to make sure that it does stick to the whole school priorities in the school. Then the other two strands are subject knowledge enhancement. So we have a commitment to staff that we will support them in their subject knowledge. And because we save a lot of money on external and not having external CPD, because we run lots of it ourselves, as, as we've spoken about, have more of a dialogue around teaching and learning. We can offer a kind of financial commitment to that. But we also use a section of department time for the department to talk about their subject knowledge. And that's really, really important. And it's created a kind of atmosphere in the school of people being you know, very geeky about their subjects and allowing them a time to be to, to, to be a bit nerdy about, about swatting up their own subject knowledge, which is really, really good. So it's got a blend of internal subject knowledge enhancement within departments with time allocated for that, and then a commitment to external support. 
So, for example, our music department are having uh, conductor lessons, for example, and singing lessons using that time. And our English department have booked in a trip to the British Library when things are more normal again. That's really cool. And then our um, final strand, oh yes, is our leadership strands. We also have middle leadership strands. And um, we have created a staff training guide that runs with that. Me, Rob and Claire have uh, each written a chapter for that that runs live every session. It means that it's compulsory for new middle leaders and existing middle leaders can opt into each session. If for whatever reason, or very often happens, you know, the, the, uh, the head of maths is running an intervention so they can't attend the session, then but really wanted, was really interested to, they can dip into the chapter of the guide instead and then contact me or whoever wrote that chapter with any questions that they have. So we've tried to make sure that there is, staff have more empowerment, they, they have more choice about what they attend, and this has improved um, staff's attitude to CPD, and I think improved the quality as well. So you must then get a lot of what we call teacher agency, and, and in Scotland we talk very much about empowerment, and, and you've kind of mentioned a lot of that, that in action, and I think the statistics of your Friday breakfast of 40 of your 60 plus staff is testament to the quality of the dialogue that the, the teachers must feel it happens. And I love that nod to teachers allowing to be a little bit nerdy around their subject and dive deep into it. And essentially that would have been what they did at university. So it's allowing them to continue that in their, in their role as, as teachers. So thanks for sharing that. I think what was interesting is how much you value your teacher's time. That was such a fascinating insight about the, if you've got 30 minutes in your your talk that only took 20 and giving staff that time back, because I know exactly how it feels to have mandatory CPD and not get home until half five, 6 p.m., whereas getting that extra 10 minutes means you can avoid the traffic a little bit better or or so on. I, I love that appreciation that of a professional's time, essentially. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's a benefit to your senior leaders as well because staff are then so much more receptive to the ideas that you're trying to introduce in those sessions. Um, that that example I gave ASAP, I remember we finished by twenty minutes, and then loads of staff kind of stayed around and milled about in the hall and just had a chat about the routines, talked to me about them, talked about other things, and it it, it just seems so counterproductive to me to try and to try and pad out sessions in a way that's quite inefficient. Um, because it's going to damage staff morale, but also their attitude towards what they're trying to implement. Certainly, and it adds to that rhythmical dialogue that you spoke of, of teachers speaking about it and having time and space to speak about it there at the sessions, to go back to their departments and speak about it in their departments, to speak about it. It's that mentioned that rhythmical approach that you've developed through your briefings, your, your, your dialogue around your priorities and, and so on. So thank you for sharing that. And we're now going to dive a little bit into more of the, what happens in the classrooms. And can you talk us through how you've aimed to change classroom culture at the West London Free School? Yes, yeah, it's always something I've been fascinated by in my early years of teaching. I mentioned that I, I, I tried to soak up as much classroom experience during my degree and watching my mum and dad teach and things like that. Is that if you watch the very best teachers, there is a culture in the room, an atmosphere in the room of every student wanting to achieve and really wanting to believe. And what's so fascinating is that if you follow one student around a school, I remember that was a really great thing that often then encouraged you to do on the Cambridge PDC when I was training, was to watch one student 
across their six period day. And how they are in each lesson is so variable, especially in schools where staff are given huge amounts of autonomy within their classroom. You know, what one student can be uh, you know, an absolute nightmare in one lesson, and then in another lesson, they can be angelic and, and, and studious and work really, really hard. I've always been really fascinated by this, and my sort of fascination intensified when I became a head of year. So I, uh, I, don't, I can't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but whilst I was head of history, um, uh, I became a head of year simultaneously in my final year of head of history uh, when our head of year 11 left uh, midway through a year. So I sort of carried on this year 11 to the, to the end of the year. They're a fantastic group of kids. They ended up um, achieving still the best progress I school schools ever seen. I'm really, really proud of. And um, when, I was, when, when I was having these two roles simultaneously, I became quite surprised about how interdependent the two sides of the school were, the academic side and the pastoral side. And very often, I'm not sure how it's in Scotland, but in England, you end up having two separate SLT responsibilities, one deputy head for pastoral, one deputy head for academic. And uh, when I was this head of year, I started realising that I spent most of my time talking about how students were in lessons, obviously. So I, I became very interested in this kind of merging of the two. So that um, classroom culture blog is a bit of a testament to the fact that I started to work out how important classroom culture was, both from a pastoral perspective, but also to individual classroom teachers. And I remember seeing students in my mum's lessons who were completely uh, you know, turned off schooling altogether, but would turn up to her English lessons and would be volunteering to read aloud or you know, trying to show off all the noise that they'd built or showing off the fact that they'd written reams and reams and reams. And one of the things when I became an assistant head teacher for teaching and learning was I wanted to try and kind of bottle that, work out what were the parts of it that were creating that really good classroom culture and then replicate it across the school. And again, the best schools that I've seen are more successful at doing this. They're able to create a sort of culture that does span across numerous lessons rather than just being present in your very, very best teacher's lessons. So the way that I try to do, well, I think the, re, the, the ways in which this ends up happening uh, is putting the subject front and centre, so making sure that these teachers who have really good classroom culture have only talk about their subjects. They don't distract the kids with talking about like, you know, how terrible Arsenal have been at the weekend or whatever it might be. They make sure that the students in that lesson are motivated by the subject. So they, they, they manage to make that, make sure that is the only focus. They often have a kind of warm, strict approach to behaviour. They consistently praise students. So all the way through a lesson, they consistently praise all the students in that lesson. They manufacture chances for the students to feel successful. So very often when I was trying to observe the teachers that were that had the best classroom culture, they created little moments where students felt like they had a win. So if you've got a student that's gone through the other five periods of the day, got to your period six on a Friday, and they have felt like they've sat there very passively and not had any success in any of them and really struggled with lots of the content, then creating a little moment for them to feel successful you know, chimmies them along. 
parental contact, I thought was another, another thing that seems really strong with those teachers that had good classroom culture, making sure that they established a relationship, relationship at home. And then if things do go wrong, you can kind of pick those up in a quite a positively framed way, or you can consistently praise and tell parents about how well they're doing in lessons. A range of pupil participation and also kind of that humour and enthusiasm. So uh, I then had to try and uh, watch all these lessons, watch all this good classroom culture. And then thought, how on earth do you do this whole school? So one of them we've already talked about, which is the kind of shared language that was that was implemented slowly through assemblies. So we use collective responsibility uh, as a way of showing that if students regularly worked hard in lessons, if they regularly contributed to class discussion, everyone would benefit, not just themselves. And so there's this idea of a collective. Marginal gains uh, was another one, making sure that they, they um, made the most of every single second, not just for themselves, but for everybody else. We've often talked about this idea of exceptional times during COVID, the fact that you know, these are really difficult times, they're really exceptional, but one day you'll look back at them and think, oh, I'm really proud of my achievements through, through that real adversity. So we use the shared language with staff and with pupils to make sure every single lesson, they were hearing the same sorts of terms that was developing a kind of common classroom culture. So they'd go from maths, where they talked about collective responsibility, and right at the beginning of the lesson, their religious studies teacher would say a similar thing. So they always felt they were always being tuned along, that kind of like constant praise, that constant reminder of how they should behave was always there in every single lesson. And um, just to sort of give credit to Joe Facer, who's spoken a lot about in, in, in her sort of work education and her, uh, her most recent book, and in her work as a new head teacher on this idea of a shared language. So I think that's, if you're interested in that sort of thing, Joe's the sort of person to follow on Twitter for that kind of thing. And then pedagogically, we also introduced this idea of a big cell. So as part of the entrance routine, as staff are kind of unpacking all their things and the students are waiting for them to be ready in the lesson silently, we encourage staff to really sell the topic for the lesson. So, you know, even if it's a bit of a kind of a dull topic, you explain why it's incredibly important. So for example, always think about the Manchuria crisis from a history perspective. I always start that lesson sort of saying, well, this is a bit of an obscure bit of knowledge that you're going to find really fascinating today. We get to focus in a different area geographically to what we usually study to in the Far East, and it's going to be really interesting. But most importantly for most of you, it'll be fascinating because it links to the rise of Hitler, and actually it lays the foundations for the rise of Nazism, which is it, it's clever in two ways, because it provides a kind of a, a bit of prior knowledge, a link to something that they already know, so they feel confident studying it, that's part of the big sell, but also it's an enthusiastic delivery. It makes them excited about the topic. And again, it's putting the, the subject front and centre. And I, it's, it's worth saying before I, I sort of finish is that I, I, I don't feel at all like we've cracked this yet. I think that there's real gains in making sure that classroom culture is incredibly positive in a school and every single pupil feels they can, they, they can achieve in every single lesson and they see themselves in a collective and all those sorts of things. So I've got a blog post upcoming that plans to unpick this a little bit more because I feel that it's such a, a real benefit to a school to have really, really high quality classroom culture. It certainly is, and, and it's such a, a difficult thing to get across a, a school, but I, I love that idea of a shared language, a common language, and I can just imagine a, one of the one of the students sitting in maths period one and then history period two and then 
um, science period three and they're hearing about collective responsibility, marginal gains, everyone's going to benefit. Um, and this kind of front loading, if you like, of the subject, I love that example you gave of, of the history classroom. I felt hooked. I wanted to start the lesson straight away, straight away. So, <laughs> so thank you so, so much. Um, and it kind of brings us kind of smoothly on to, to this next idea about supporting and challenging all of the students to be cognitive, to be cognitively active in all of their lessons and, and driving people participation. Can you speak to that, please? Yes, it's, it's, this is a term that um, I came up with to try and, as part of the teaching and learning priorities, as a bit of a push for the school. So cognitively active is this is kind of play on this idea of the, the old sort of progressive idea of active learning. The fact that, you know, students to be learning had to be active in some kind of like, quite bizarre, strange way. So, you know, I, I, I remember being encouraged to, um, stick up um, information all around the room so that pupils weren't sat down for the whole time. They weren't going to found the information. Very, very dark days. And um, I often, uh, the, the kind of like, nature, the, the rationale for this is actually reasonably sensible, even if the implementation is really poor, which is the idea that students should be active in a lesson. They, they, I, I don't think that can be disputed. They should be in, in some way kind of proactive in their learning. They, if you have a whole class of students passively listen to a teacher, that's probably not great. You want them to be active. But this has often been mixed up with kind of physically active, like a, the physically moving about. And I've got, often, this is tied up in a numerous different kind of now debunked theories like um, learning styles and being kinesthetic learner or whatever you were. Um, and I wanted to sort of play on this idea and make sure it was used as a push for the teachers to make sure that students were always participating. So cognitively active, it was just our way of making sure that there was a real unwavering, steely focus on increasing pupil participation. Now, um, the, the, the best bit of reading, the most inspiring bit of reading, I always think for this is Lamont's Teach Like a Champion. Um, I, you know, especially kind of like the instructional videos that go along with all of his work. You see that, in the very, very, very best schools with the very best teachers, students are constantly cognitively active. They're constantly part of the lesson. They're constantly challenged. They're constantly participating. And the MOV refers to this as like a participation ratio. So it refers to the range. And we were also interested in the quality of that participation. So when we talked about cognitively active, we talked about the range of participation, but also the quality. And um, you, you, you and I, Darren, right at the start of this, before this podcast started, talked about my experience with Michaela. But I remember when there were critics of Michaela saying that traditional teaching methods didn't work and, and the other things that Michaela was doing wouldn't work. I, 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 I sort of half listened to those ideas for, well, we don't know if these things are going to work until we actually see their GCSE results. And I was very kindly invited along to go and visit and met with Catherine Belsing and, and Johnny Porter and all the rest of the team. And when I was in that building, it was 2016, so a few years before their first set GCC results. When I was in that building for 10 minutes, I knew straight away that those students were going to achieve incredible GCSE results. I'm not a betting man. I'm not sure the bookies were taking it, but I'd have put a lot of money on them achieving the sorts of outcomes they eventually did. Because students in every single lesson were constantly participating. And I'd always been really interested about how to replicate this 
in, in a school in a senior leader role. And frankly, in my early days of um of 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 sort of adopting this kind of like traditional approach to teaching in the knowledge in the early days of the knowledge movement, I often thought that it, as long as students were you know, really silent, you know, had excellent behavior, were really motivated and listening to a really good subject expert, that was just better than lots of the crazy sort of progressive teaching methods that I'd seen previously. So I'd have been happy with that. However, over time, I started to realize that the best schools, the best schools championing these traditional teaching methods, the sorts of things that we have in our seven principles, had incredibly high levels of pupil participation, incredibly high quality, incredibly high, yeah, wide range. So what we tried to do was, was increase this participation at the West London Free School. Now, in the blog post that you're referring to, I do have a, a start with the start of the post really talking about the fact that I think participation needs to be built on a sort of bedrock of, of a really high quality, well-sequenced curriculum. So pupils know lots to be able to participate, really clear teacher explanations so they understand it and can articulate themselves accordingly. And obviously, really high qualities of really high standard behavior, really high bar for behavior. And I think that's essential, that bedrock, that foundation, schools like Michaela have, which means that participation can be really wide, really high quality. And when we sort of launched the, 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 this, this push, this priority of, of cognitively active, we really stressed to teachers that they needed to make sure that there was a calm studious atmosphere in lessons to be able to have that participation. And also the design of the teaching and learning systems, the entrance and exit, aims to create a kind of framework for teachers to work with them to increase participation. So I think that's really important because I worried if we have this big push on participation nationally, you could end up um, undoing lots of the really hard work in terms of behaviour, good explanation, those sorts of things. So I think that bedrock's really, really important, that kind of foundation. When we then launch this push to the kids, because we obviously launched it to teachers for the teaching and learning priorities, we really clearly communicated the why and the how, just as we did the teaching and learning systems. We said to them, we're having this push on participation in lessons, not because we want to annoy you, not because we want to pick on you in classes and, and be a bit of a nuisance. It's because we know 100% that pupils who participate regularly will do really well at school. And you have a collective responsibility amongst your class to to. Yeah, benefit everyone. If your participation is good and you're regularly participating, everyone benefits. So we really clearly solved the why and then also the how, how they should do it. And we introduced free whole school systems that staff could use um, uh, to try and do this. And we communicated this to the kids as well. One was cold call. So we, we, we obviously a very common strategy, uh, wasn't particularly alien to staff. The idea that there should always be some form of cold call in a lesson to make sure that a range of students are participating. Call and response, and we trained the students how to do this call and response, and it was communicated to them that it would be happening. Um, and turn and talk was our other one. So we always said, we said to students, very often, you'll be told to talk, turn and talk to your neighbour about a very specific issue. It's really important. You don't focus on anything else. You just focus on that issue because your teachers are then going to call on you to talk about that issue. And you've got to have spoken about it with your with your neighbour, essentially. And we communicate the same thing to staff. We said to them, this is why we're doing this. This is how you should do it. We gave them loads of staff training. So, for example, turn and talk, we always say, has to be a very, very, very specific timing and a very specific issue to discuss to make sure it's really high quality um, 
And we also, it's worth saying, did a lot of training with staff on questioning and what makes up a really good you know, teacher-led bit of questioning. And um, uh, we introduced the kind of things that were bad about questioning, the things that were good about questioning, and that's all written within the blog. I won't go into it too much now, but it used lots of Lamov's uh, methods from Teach Like a Champion, like stretch it, wait time, peppering, and also warned against some kind of rookie errors that you can make with questioning that we all see within our teaching. Things like rounding up an incorrect answer or um, uh, having a very specific response that you want from a student within your heads that's not clearly communicated to them within the question, which just wastes huge amounts of time and lowers pupil morale. So that was our big push. And I, 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 we're in the early stages of it, and it was a bit of a shame that it got cut short by COVID, obviously. And we'll talk a little bit later about how we've kind of moved that onto Teams and, and that push. But I do think this, this idea of regular range, high quality participation is a, is a you know, really key thing to improve whole school teaching and learning. Brilliant. And a, and a seamless transition into our final question of the interview section. But before we do that, it's uh, it's wonderful that you've you've taken this term active learning and, and spun it round into being cognitively active and, and you, that nods to Lamov and Lamov opens that chapter by by talking about who does more of the work, the cognitive workout, the teacher or the student in a, in a particular response that he that he shares with us. And it's important that the, the students are doing a lot of the, as he calls it, the workout um, in the minds, because it's, it's them that, that we want to learn the stuff. And I like the threads. I just like to note the threads that have, that have ran through this discussion in terms of collective responsibility and marginal gains and focus on your messages around the turn and talk that detail into the students through through assembly and tutor time and so on that they must be specific with their neighbour because they will be cold called upon and, and sharing that with the, with the teachers and making sure that the question is of a high quality and a, and a specific nature. The threads are, are wonderful as they come through and how that kind of principles, if you like, all, all sit within a lot of what you're saying. So thank you for that. And, and as I mentioned, we moved us on to the last question of, of the interview section. In the, in the golden question of the current time, how are you transferring all of this into an online platform to support remote teaching and learning? Yes, it's, it's been a sort of incredibly turbulent time for teachers, hasn't it, over the past year, understatement of the year, really. And just like any any school, especially sort of in the state comprehensive sector, we were faced with that challenge of, of, of the first lockdown with very little time to prepare. And we made a very early decision to adopt live online teaching, which I know was a has been a, um, a point of controversy in the sort of edu Twitter community about um, adopting this, especially during the first lockdown. It seems that actually during the second lockdown, vastly more people seem to have adopted live online teaching, which is which is interesting in itself. But we were we were very early to adopt Teams as a as a platform for kind of live teaching uh, on this obviously online platform. Now the reason we did that was because we'd well, I, I'd certainly heard a lot from the independent sector about the, the the benefits of this in terms of being able to prioritize a platform like Teams. Uh, being able to prioritise the essential components of a lesson and the essential components of teaching. So I was really keen to make sure that pupils still got really clear teacher explanations um, and, and, and sort of direct instruction, so to speak. And also um, 
excellent behavior so to make sure that in, you were able to communicate over the platform that they should be working really hard they should be motivated and um, that going back to those kind of ideas of good classroom culture to make sure every student was working really really hard at home i didn't really see how you'd be able to do that with a um, pre-recorded video for example and uh, not as effectively anyway and in the final sort of key component of a live lesson i thought was was going to be something to prioritize was student participation being able to make sure that there was a pupil teacher dialogue all the way through a live lesson and yeah people have rightfully pointed out on edge of twitter that there's very little that there's not a robust evidence base to be able to support any of these ideas because it's completely alien to us but that was the decision we took really early on and i think it was a, i think it was the right decision and um it has meant that we've managed to keep we've managed to prioritize the really high impact you know three areas of teaching that we wanted to pupil participation excellent behavior and motivating students online and then teacher explanations and direct instruction now i think part of the reason it was so successful uh, for us was that we gave the platform over entirely to our teachers and we were we were very 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 um liberal in the way that we allow teachers to use it so teachers had a huge amount of autonomy we weren't prescriptive whatsoever. Um, we established, you know, the, the, we, we established really basic training about how to use Teams. And then we gave massive amounts of department time for departments to work out what that would look like within their subjects. And because we have such a really clear idea about what makes a good lesson within the seven principles, and we have that consistent dialogue around teaching broader teaching and learning principles this worked fantastically because it meant that individual departments decided to take the platform either as far as they could or used it in its most limited form so for example our music department they decided that they were going to entirely adopt google quizzing as a, as a way of you know consistently monitoring uh the success of pupils retrieval practice as in us in the history department for example we entirely use microsoft forms now we still made sure that there was some consistency for kids some familiarity so every single teacher had to present work on show my homework because we knew that all students were used to this kind of online platform now called satchel one but they all had that on their phones and they could all access work so at the very beginning, that was so important when we didn't have much time to sort out IT access. And then the other platform they had to use for their live lessons was Microsoft Teams. So we were prescriptive in the use of those two platforms, but huge amounts of autonomy. And what that successfully did was it released the kind of inner geek and nerd of your teachers online to really want to make this work for their subjects. So our departments really took this took this opportunity to think really carefully about how the most essential parts of their subject could be communicated via an online platform. And like one of my favorite examples of this is like in the kind of chaos of the first lockdown was that the, maths, the head of maths just came in and just took all the visualizers, just took everyone, took them straight home, uh, just so that he could model it at home. And it was a brilliant idea. It worked so well because every single one of his teachers then was able to um, model explicitly 
and you know follow the kind of essential components of things like fading and scaffolding so that pupils could then work independently outside of maths lessons and it worked phenomenally well as within the history department we were obviously much more based on our own internally produced textbooks that uh, Rob Pill and Rob Self have used knowing history so we spent a lot more time focusing on our textbooks and how to adapt our resources for online teaching it worked fantastically well the second thing is create the second reason that I think it worked so well was trying to create a buzz and excitement and enthusiasm around utilizing the platform. So we created something called the Teaching and Learning Hints document. And it was a very simple idea. I, I just had a blank Word document and I would ask staff to send in via screenshots uh, on a template I'd created the, the sorts of things they were finding really useful on using Teams. And this, this meant that. One, staff, we celebrated the fact staff are working so hard on this platform. But also, secondly, it became quite exciting. Like people suddenly worked out, like, you know, um, I don't know, when breakout rooms first were, were adopted for Turn and Talk, I had like four teachers desperately trying to get their screenshots together to be the first ones to, to get it out on the teaching and learning tips document. And even more simply at the start, when there was a hands up function added or when staff started to realize that it was a good idea to get give students wait time to construct their answer in the chat function before pressing enter. That was like such a simple thing that was adopted that had huge benefits to all of the staff and staff were really proud about showing it off. And because I had my regular briefing slot, I was able to sort of celebrate those contributions. So I very often say, you know, uh, Abby Hughes and Divinity has come up with this absolutely fantastic idea for breakout rooms. This is how it works. Huge thank you to Abby, that sort of thing. So it was a really good way of keeping staff morale high. Now, we also had a blend of voluntary CPD and remote CPD. So lots of this CPD I sent out to be read in uh, staff's own time, in teacher's own time. And the Friday breakfast, they just went straight online. So the Friday breakfast CPD, and we would record those that we watched afterwards. So in some ways, staff CPD actually improved. And we used lots of external CPD uh, that had been pre-recorded, like Research Ed put on loads of amazing lectures at the time. And I think that was really important for staff morale to feel like they had choice and uh, some kind of agency in the sort of CPD they could adopt and choose. And then finally, one that I'd, I'd never have, I'd never have sort of uh, put emphasis on until the time, I never sort of valued, was the real value of the school community during those difficult times. So our head teacher Claire, she'd send out a a weekly head teacher's message to staff, sorry, not weekly, a daily head teacher's message to staff, where she would just talk about, you know, often quite inane things, but quite fun, the things that she'd be watching on TV or things that she'd been reading and contributions that she'd received from staff and celebrating little things that happened throughout the week. Um, and this was so successful in the first lockdown that we've now expanded this hugely. So our school community online now includes a weekly staff events, uh, so um, what have we had so far? So there's like a trick shots event that the kids are using with us. So the PE department have put together like trick shots and ping pong balls and things like that. Uh, the you know the music department comes up with like creating your own song. The art department did a self portrait, for example, that's then teachers submit their entries and it's shared during the briefing. Obviously, side splittingly hilarious are the entries and it's really really good. Creating a great atmosphere and. Um, we also have a like a weekly book club. There are there are um, there's a running club where people record their 
uh, times on Strava. So this kind of enhancing of the sport community, I think has been really, really great. And I don't think that could have been achieved without a live online platform like Teams, because you do get those kind of uh, real-time interactions like, like we have now. Certainly, the idea of bringing everyone closer together, yet we're so far away. It's a, it's a wonderful nod, and I love how you close that off with reference to such a vibrant school community, because although the all the nuances of, of teaching and learning in the classroom is so, so important in a time like now, as we mentioned before the, the podcast, the connecting with each other in the, in the school community with our, our pastimes and hobbies and interests is, is so, so, so important to, to do. So thank you so much. And what a beautiful way to, to close off, the, close off the, the interview section of the podcast, Louis. So thanks so much for that, for that input. I mean, my, my book is, is full of notes with my terrible handwriting. So thank you so much. <laughs> um, before we move on to the quick fire questions, the questions that I ask every guest that are, loaded <laughs> they're so broad but <laughs> i want you to shoot from the hip um can you please direct the listeners to where they can find out more about you the signpost your twitter handle your blog and of course where they can find out a little bit more about the west london free school yeah so everything that i've um i hope i've given enough credit to all the people that i've borrowed ideas off and have been an inspiration to me sort of you know in my early career and now um uh but if you want to sort of find out more about the underpinnings of the West London Free School specifically and our vision and ethos, our vision page, just, just type in West London Free School vision, and we have a really, really comprehensive vision page, has the seven principles of West London Free School lesson and all the core readings that underpin the ethos that we're very, very proud of um, at school. Uh, all of the work individually, as I said yesterday, I was very self-indulgent. I'm not really going to sell myself like this, but I, yeah, my um, my Twitter has all of my kind of um, information and the link to my blog post. And um, so I always forget even what my blog post is, the name of it was cracked so many years ago. And um, it's one thing after another. But if you go straight to my Twitter handle, which is Louis Everett One, um, then you can go onto my bio and on there is all my blog posts. And yeah, please do get in contact by get in contact via Twitter. I'm a huge advocate of Edu Twitter, and very often it gets a bit of a bad name, and there are obviously limitations to the platform. But um, it's benefited me hugely over my um, over my career. So yeah, please do uh, get in contact. And I like to think I'm very generous in my time. I'd be more than happy to speak to you about some of the things I've discussed today. Certainly, uh, likewise with my thoughts on, on Edgy Twitter. And in terms of generous with your time, I'd like to signpost to, to listeners that we started at nine o'clock, and it's now. 12 past 12 minutes past 11 on Thursday the 18th of February so that just shows how generous Louis is with the time I think we spoke for about an hour before we even started the podcast so thank you so now the, the quick fire questions Louis are you ready for them I am yes yes okay so question number one uh, what makes great teaching for you Oh, yes, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it, to distill it? I mean, the temptations to go through the seven principles of West London Free School Lesson, but I'll boil it down a little bit more than that. Um, I think calm, studious classrooms is is one of the most important elements. And as I said earlier, I if you see the very best teachers do that, it, it's phenomenal the way they manage to like, motivate pupils and foster a love of, of a subject and feel really, really motivated. Uh, I think I think the second thing is clarity and enthusiasm of delivery and um, that ability to build a whole room to be able to stand there and have you know 20 odd students all you know captivated by your teacher instruction and love for your subjects I think is a 
a, a very, very important one. And I think finally, giving pupils the confidence and opportunity to participate um, after mastery. So if you've managed to make sure that pupils are really well motivated, their understanding is really, really clear, the teacher explanations have been clear, concise and enthusiastic, then giving them the opportunity to be able to um, apply the sorts of concepts and feel that they're successful, um, I think is, is what really good teaching is. Certainly, and you mentioned earlier about, I think it was you talking about your, your mother's classroom where she just made children feel successful and, and quickly feel successful. So they, they wanted them to participate more. So thank you for that. Uh, question two is what one thing would you prioritize to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Yes, it's always it's always tempting with questions like this to try and to try and give some kind of really novel, impressive answer. But I I, I genuinely think if I if, if I was to find a magic wand and you know I, I was to implement something across all classrooms in the country, the biggest benefit I think it'd be excellent behaviour. I know uh, Tom Bennett on Twitter is always brilliant on this, but I think um, if, if 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 you were to make sure that behavior was of the highest quality and people felt motivated and wanted to learn in every single classroom in the country i think we'd, we'd, we'd probably have one of the best education, education systems in the world without doubt without doubt thank you and, and the final question question three if you could change just one thing in education what would that be oh, again really hard one um I, I i think it would be to depoliticize classroom practice um, I don't know, potentially maybe not the, the highest impact thing, but I think from my perspective personally, especially within a kind of a whole school teaching and learning role, I often find it really frustrating when quite pragmatic, effective teaching practice is like politicised or, or disputed because of ideology, or on the turn side of that, some more sort of ineffective debunked teaching methods are floated just because of an ideology or a political stance. And, you know, I've, I've often been victim to this myself, where I have seen methods work really, really well in schools and think they can have a really high impact, think they could really benefit lots of children, but have been unable to, to convince people of their, of their worth because they're so closely attached to one, one side of the political spectrum or one, or one particular ideology. So I think that would be my, if, if, if there was something that I could, I could change. I think it would be to remove classroom practice from, from kind of entrenched ideology and, and political thoughts. Certainly. And if you can ever achieve that, please do let me know so we can bottle it and, and sell it and, and become, become edgy millionaires. Um, so that brings us to the end of the podcast. Lee, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you so, so much for, for sharing so much of what you do in your work at West London Free School. And of course, recognising the influences that, other people have made on you in, in terms of picking up the bat and that they started and, and running with it. And I'd like to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time for the Becoming Educated podcast. I really value it. Oh, no worries at all. Thank you for having me on, Darren. Massively appreciative. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from, so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. 
I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.